You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome and welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Nils Kastelassen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Alan last week, where we had quite a detailed discussion on what has been referred to as return stacking when building a diversified portfolio and the risk implications. Also, I would like to encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Kevin Coldine spoke to author Larry Siegel, who has written a new book called Fewer, Richer, Greener, and where they discussed the prospects for humanity in an age of abundance and how uh, demographic trends impact inflation, as well as the current energy and climate challenges but where there is a refreshingly optimistic tone in some of their findings, which I think we can all use at this time. But of course, you shouldn't head over and listen to that before we're done speaking with Rich today. So Rich, let me get you into the uh, to the conversation here. How are you doing, my friend? How are things down under? Good, thanks, Niels. A bit warm down here. Uh, sorry, a bit cold down here, but I noticed that uh, you're getting a bit of a heat wave up there. So we're, we're definitely living in alternate spheres of this world. Oh my God, yeah. It's absolutely melting here in the middle of uh, Europe. And we're not even the worst hit. I mean, Southern Europe, I really... I really feel for these uh, sort of 40 plus degrees uh, when you're trying to do anything productive during the day. So, um, yeah, that's how it is. Um, We've got a great lineup of topics today and we've also got some really great uh, questions that you and I will try to uh, tackle. Um, Before we do that, uh, I want to run through a quick uh, market wrap as usual, but actually I also want to just acknowledge and give a shout out to those who have left a rating and review in recent weeks. I haven't mentioned it, but we so appreciate it. Um, and, you know, once again, if you um, if you want to help us grow the podcast, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing a link called toptradersunplug.com forward slash share with three of your like-minded friends or colleagues, and that's a great way to show your appreciation for the time that we put into bringing you this content uh, free of charge every week. And of course, if you want to leave a rating and review in iTunes or Spotify, that is, of course, an extra bonus for us. So thanks very much in advance. It was indeed a very busy week, to say the least, with lots of economic data to digest. Before we head over to the all-important, at least to the Fed uh, CPI numbers, let me just mention that uh, China came out uh, this week saying that their economy grew at the slowest pace since the country was first hit by the coronavirus outbreak two years ago, making Beijing's growth target for the year increasingly unattainable as economists are now busy downgrading their forecasts even further. Meanwhile, over here in Europe, the main political focus was on the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi, who was denied trying to quit, unlike Boris Johnson, who seemed to have very few friends left in Parliament. Draghi, who of course is the former president of the European Central Bank, has held his positions for almost two years, 
But discontent has been rising lately over a variety of issues, like the increase of level of trash, by the way, in the uh, that what can be found in Rome. So I guess now it's up to Draghi to uh, do whatever it takes to find the political backing that he needs. If we look across the pond to the US, front-end interest rate volatility remained elevated this week, with the market temporarily adding an additional 25 basis points expected increase in Fed funds post the record CPI print. January 2023, Fed funds uh, traded as high as 3.49%, um, oh yeah, a, a week ago, um, but this week it touched 3.74% Thursday morning, but it did back down to around 3.5% Friday afternoon. And of course, the shockingly, at least for some, high CPI print um, has been tempered by softer data. Uh, for example, headline inf- uh, retail sales point to a consumer modeling along, combating high energy prices by buying less elsewhere. The expectations, uh, or the exception, I should say, are the restaurants, uh, a slight bounce in vehicle and a little bit of strength in uh, online shopping. Overall, retail sales have fallen two months in a row now. And of course, the University of Michigan surveys released Friday showed a slight uptick in sentiment following June's abysmal reading and also a slight downtick in long-term inflation expectations. And for that, we got a relief rally um, and easing fears of a 100 basis point rate hike uh, later this month. And that left stocks in the US up 1.7% uh, Friday, but still off about a percent for the week. Anyways, Rich... Um, what have caught your attention in the last few weeks since we last spoke? And uh, I hope your battleship is doing well these days. Yes, look, I've, I've sort of been sitting here wondering when there's going to be this give back with my portfolio. But this year, it's been a, a fairly strange year. So um, this month, um, I was clobbered early in the month with um, uh, the move in the energies like spot crude um, and spot bread. But um, when I look at it, uh, other areas of the portfolio have stood up really well. So, you know, I'm sitting at, at about my high water mark. I haven't had this major give back. I'm always sort of waiting for the day that's going to occur, but it's an unusual environment at the moment. The, the trends tend to, seem to be favourable. They seem to be enduring. And, um, yeah, unlike uh, what we've experienced, you know, um, over the last you know decade or so, where there was that inev- inevitable give back over these protracted um, trending periods, we we seem to be avoiding them at the moment. Yeah, I think we'll come back to that topic a little bit later because it is quite interesting to follow. Um, I do think, from a trend following perspective, I think this week was probably relatively quiet, despite quite large uh, market moves. Uh, in terms of performance, but I also think it's a little bit mixed uh, at the moment. And we had kind of, we're having two big forces uh, at play. Uh, on one side, we had this drop in yields um, from the anticipation of economic weakness and fewer rate hikes by the Fed. And that's dragging down performance because most trend followers are short bonds and, and you know, throughout the whole yield curve. And then the other force uh, was this continuation of the surge in the US dollar. Um, despite many people have been calling for the collapse of the greenback uh, for uh, quite a while now. And that's kind of offsetting a lot of these losses at the moment. Um, And then, of course, you have another theme that's going on, and that's the continued weakness in energy prices, which is against long positions by at least the longer-term trend followers uh, at the moment. And this is most likely 
as a consequence of the ongoing, uh, well, not only, but there is some of it, I think, is this ongoing release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the US uh, of about a million barrels a day. Um, but, you know, the thing is that this is meant to be an emergency stockpile of petroleum uh, maintained by the US, and it's not really a tool to manage prices uh, leading into an election season, but of course that's exactly what it's being used to, uh, useful. And perhaps the markets are also hoping for an increased oil production by the Saudis as a result to uh, of Biden's trip to Jeddah. Um, but so far, uh, when I read the news this morning, Biden's trip has not resulted in an immediate pledge for a production hike. Um, but of course, U.S. officials say that they are confident that Riyadh would lead to an OPEC. Uh, plus alliance to uh, an agreement on a gradual boost at least. And then to round things off, um, I do, you know, the grains were a bit softer this week, maybe with the exception of wheat in terms of performance, uh, not referring to price here. Um, but this was probably made up by some positive contributions from metals. In particular, I think copper uh, could have been a nice contributor. It dropped 8%. And I think a lot of trend followers are actually uh, trading that on the short side. Um, again, something we may touch on uh, later on. Um, if we look at my trend for uh, barometer, it finished at a neutral level of 45 yesterday. So uh, nothing really to uh, be learned from that. And yesterday, I think, was a down day for uh, most trend followers uh, with the price action we saw. Uh, but it still leaves the performance of the various indices in a healthy situation because the BTOP50 index as of Thursday was up 56 basis points, still up 17.16% for, uh, for the month. Uh, sorry, for the year. And the SOCGEN CTA index uh, was up, I think, about um, around 1%. It's either 10 basis points or 1%. Um, I, I think my notes are a little bit wrong here. Um, but it's up 22.35% for the year. So it's very healthy. And the trend index is up 0.93% of a percent for the month and up 30.16% for the year. And finally, the short-term traders index up 55 basis points and up almost 12% for the year. Uh, and comparing that uh, is the MSCI World Index, which is up just shy of 1% so far this month, but still down almost 21% for the year. And finally, the World Government Bond Index, which is having a welcome uh, positive month so far of 64 basis points after, I think, seven or eight months in a row where it lost money. So pretty uh, interesting stuff, Rich. I think we're going to tackle some questions straight away, if you're up for that, Richard. Yep. All right. Well, the first one comes from our friend Bruno. Uh, Bruno writes, Hi, Nils. First of all, thanks for the show. The content never disappoints, and I can't stress enough how much it helped me on my own trend-following journey. My question for you guys is simple. Why do you think trend-following works? For us, initiates, it seems pretty obvious. But I've often had a hard time trying to explain the merits of our beloved approach in a simple and convincing way to the general public. So why do you guys think trends occur in markets and why is it best to exploit them for, um, through systems? Uh, as everything trend following a simple but not simplistic topic. All right. Pretty good question, Bruno. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Rich. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's I think it's something that not just Bruno uh, struggles with from time to time. No, it is it is quite challenging. But uh, look, the way I see it, uh, it, it fundamentally comes down to what I think is what we call trader impact. In other words, the buy sell decision of a trader um, 
exerts a force in the market, uh, a small force, but um, nevertheless a force. Um, so uh, you can look at the force of an individual trader with their buy-sell decision, or you could look at the force of a collective um, group of traders doing a similar thing. I think that uh, when we talk about what actually, when we talk about information getting into the market, I think that um, the, the, the way people interpret information actually translates into their behaviour, which translates um, into their use of their models, which translates into their trader impact. So ultimately, everything stems to me from trader impact. You can go sort of several degrees of separation away to look at things like the information uh, uh, that's valid for a market. So fundamentals, I think they are related to the market, but I think ultimately it comes down to how that information is interpreted and how um, that that um, that information um, creates the buy-sell decision. Um, so, you know, there are traders in the market who use models. There are traders in the market who are discretionary. Uh, they're all using different uh, different systems effectively uh, based on different sort of inputs going into their system, but ultimately there's a buy and a sell decision and how the market sort of sees that buy and sell decision and how they all line up create these amplifications of a signal, like when when um, the buy, buy decision um, is being agreed on by so many um, collective participants, it amplifies that signal. But the way I see it, I, I think Mark Rezepsinski did a very interesting article about uh, three weeks ago um, or two weeks ago talking about, uh, he was referring, I think, back to um, Jean-Paul Bouchard's um, explanation for the market, talking about um, prices stickiness. And, and what, what that means is that um, information, um, he from his research, he doesn't believe that in information is immediately absorbed into the market. It takes time for that information to be absorbed into the market. Now, the more defined and the more understood or the more certain that information is, the quicker it is absorbed into the market. But the more uh, the more sort of um, ambiguous that information is, the more uncertain that information is, the longer that information takes to actually be absorbed into the market. Now, the, the degree or how information gets into the market ultimately translates to me in trader impact. Those that people that are deciding at this point in time, that's sufficient information for me to make a buy-sell decision. They will then enact their buy-sell decision. But others will be lagging that, and then others will be lagging that. So what that does, see, the, the lag that occurs with prices stickiness, I think, creates this endurance in a trend uh, over a period of time. And that, that that's the sort of price signal that a trend follower wants. We don't necessarily want an immediate massive price change. We want a price change over a large interval of time. And this is where um, Jean-Paul Bichard started talking about um, endogenous events versus exogenous events. Um, exogenous events being related to news that comes into the market, it, it's quickly absorbed by the market. Um, news events tend to be, uh, a, you know, a, a general consensus is quickly reached on the, the news that enters a market. But these endogenous events, um, there's no clear um, causal driver associated with those endogenous events. And um, they are often created internally within the market itself 
from this progressive shift in behavioural tendency of the market participants towards a consensus. Um, and they're the sort of trends, I think, that create um, these outliers um, that we're, well, I'm particularly fond of, and I know a lot of us are, um, that, that's sort of my raison d'etre, these outliers, these, these events that are um, ambiguous, they're uncertain, People take a long time to understand the causal drivers associated with them, but they're there. And because of that uncertainty associated with them, they tend to be massive events. Um, uh, you know, when, when you've caught an outlier, you only realise that as a hindsight statement. Um, to actually, when you're riding an outlier, you don't know where it's going to end. But um, we're always shocked at the end how far they've actually gone. Um, so, and that always defies what I call a predictive mindset. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how I, I see it. I hope that explains it. Yeah, no, I think that explains it very well. Uh, I have very little to uh, add to it because I thought that was very elegant. But I will say, of course, that I'm hoping next week when Mark is uh, on that we might uh, also hear his um, sort of um, detailed uh, views on this. Because I do think what Bruno does is he touches on a really important issue because unless we can explain and compel people to believe why trends occur... And then also as the follow-up question, which I'd love to hear your thoughts about in a second, about why they're better to be exploited from a systematic uh, rules-based point of view. I think this is what's holding a lot of investors back from actually allocating to this space is because they don't really feel uh, they fully understand why it works. But of course, from from my perspective, if I was just going to add a, a couple of sentences to what you said maybe as a more kind of down-to-earth um, explanation. Well, first of all, I would say about why trends occur. I mean, first of all, I think people should go and spend a little bit of time and just flicking through long-term charts so they can see that they do occur and they continue to occur. Because I think that's very compelling evidence that, yeah, okay, do I even have to understand why? Because I can see they're there, right? So that's kind of the first thing. Um, but the second thing is that if we just take something as simple as commodities, you know, there there is always going to be a change in the balance between supply and demand. That's inevitable. Uh, and of course, this change in the balance can be affected by external events like, you know, weather. And once we have this kind of shift in in, uh, in that, uh, it, it may also then change the expectations from the market participants. And of course, here I'm thinking about more the uh, the uh, fundamental or discretionary type participants, not the rules-based managers. We, we just pick up the uh, change in price and then we react to that. So, so I think that's a very simple explanation as to why these trends do occur because nobody has a static view. Same with the financial markets. We don't have a static view on earnings. We don't have a static view on interest rates or on currencies for that matter. And and therefore it leads to, I remember when um, uh, Andrew Lowe um, were on the podcast a few years back, and of course he's in favor of the ad adaptive market hypothesis, not the efficient market hypothesis. And and, and he was always saying, well, markets are actually efficient most of the time, but not always. And you have that fine change in the balance that leads to these trends and therefore markets adapting accordingly. So I think that's true um, because we know for a fact that markets don't spend most of their time trending, but they do trend from time to time. And that's all we need um, because we're going to be lying 
like lions on in the uh, savanna hunting for these uh, outliers as you like to describe them and we're going to be ready uh, when uh, when they occur so so that's kind of the first thing then the next question that bruno asks is about why we think that this can be better exploited by um, systems and i think and i'd love to hear your view but just to give you my few thoughts on that i mean the reason i think that uh, the chance of exploiting trends via systems uh, is better is really the discipline that a system brings to the investment process because I don't think we, I mean, nobody can predict uh, consistently and accurately what the future holds. So you need some other reliable process that you can stick to. And, um, you know, also to avoid, of course, um, you know, the Im- impact from emotions um, and, and, and confidence or lack of confidence for that matter because we really don't know what the future holds. I think this year... You know, we don't even have to go back further than this year just to um, see the evidence of how unpredictable the world can be. Because only a few months ago, people were talking about, you know, oil going to $200 and grain prices continuing, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly we find ourselves, uh, you know, 30, 40% lower. A lot of people didn't expect that at the time, but now they expect a recession and things can go even lower, right? So it it all changes. And I think the only way to kind of navigate uh, ever-changing markets, ever-changing uncertain regimes and different um, environments is by having some constant. And the constant is the rules or are the rules. Um, And and I think that's why people should uh, embrace that and and give uh, and appreciate much more what uh, what these rules are. Uh, everybody knows the phrase that Richard Dennis um, has uh, has said many many years ago: uh, "The trend is your friend." But when I spoke with him and did the interview with him uh, and Jerry um, a number of years back, his final words were really, "Yeah, the trend may be your friend, but it's the rules that is your guardian angel." And I think that is so accurate, really, uh, in that sense. So those would be my kind of two cents as to why it's important to use systems when it comes to trend following and investing in general, really. Yeah. Yeah, I could only add to that, Niels, that um, when when we refer to these things that we like to catch called outliers, um, they are regarded as anomalies or uh, statistical aberrations, if you like. So everything in our mind is telling us that uh, they shouldn't occur. And that's why we call them an aberration, an outlier, an anomaly. And therefore, a system, a, a systematic process, I think is essential um, to override the desire of our brains to um, basically assume that they don't exist, if you know what I mean. So you need a, a systematic process to enforce, lay down the, these these golden rules that must be followed at all times to avoid the propensity of our brains to override that decision. That, that's what I think is the essential part of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well put. All right. We have a question from Eli. Eli writes, hi, Niels. Uh, It's Eli again. Hope all is well with you. Um, I was wondering if you or any of the other hosts have thoughts about doing trend following on trend following. For example, perhaps you only engage in trend following when your trend barometer is over a certain level. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Thanks very much. Now, of course, that is an obvious question for me to answer, but I wouldn't mind, Rich, if you would give, go first, because okay. obviously I look at 
we might look at things differently, but why would you? I I would say. Why wouldn't you or would you do this? What Eli says, I actually think we do. Um, So um, I think Mike Melisino put up a very good tweet this week, and he said there's a time to go trading and there's a time to go fishing. And um, what that meant was that um, for a trend follower, we're not in the market at all times. Some are. Some forms of trend following with their systems might be in the market at all times, but I certainly am not. So I think at least for my systems, it's imperative to um, have a system that is active or inactive and inactive during the times I don't want to participate and active during the times I do want to participate. So when Eli says, why don't we have trend following on trend following, when I use my long-term lookbacks for my donkey and lookback or my different um, entry-based systems that I use for my models, they all basically have a fairly large look back, which basically therefore makes them inactive over a very large portion of the market activity. Um, They only therefore become active when those signals become active during extreme times where uh, I, I sort of like to think we're heading out towards the tails of the distribution. That's where my models start getting active. If they are sort of sitting around the bulk of the distribution of normal market returns, I, I tend to like my systems being inactive. So I, I totally understand where Eli's coming, but I, I beg to say that I actually do what he's suggesting anyway. But what do you think, Niels? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because it seems so obvious, right? That, well, you should only switch them on if uh, if a certain thing happens. So first of all, let me say, the reason why I don't think you could use the trend barometer, it's actually interesting because I had another one contacting me today, uh, not, sorry, not today, this week, about if they could get the data for the trend, uh, for the, uh, trend barometer uh, so that they could I- incorporate it into their models. Um, because, you know, and I, and I, answered him um, that that would not be a good idea because you always need to only use data that you can generate with certainty. And who knows if my software stops working or if I stop producing this uh, barometer, then you're suddenly stuck with a system where you don't have all the inputs. So so you shouldn't do that. But the idea of using some kind of um, trend barometer, let's call it that, um, is an interesting thing. And I, I I can look at it from two sides. On one side, I would say, well, if you say, for example, you switch it off at uh, if the trend barometer goes below 40, because I characterize that as a kind of not a great environment for trend following. Well, we have to keep in mind that that is across a whole portfolio of markets, right? So do you switch off your whole trading system at that stage, ignoring that one or two of markets could actually have been great trends and, and you're going to miss that, right? Because you're switching it off. The other thing you're going to miss is that when the trend barometer is at a really low level and you may you may be losing money at the time in your system, but the recovery in the trend barometer, say from when it's down at 20 or 25 all the way up to 60 or 65 or 70, you're going to be missing a big portion of that. So I don't think the way I the way my trend barometer works would be something I would use as a filter, as an active filter. Now, then comes the question of, can you potentially find a way to distinguish in general uh, the uh, environment for trend following? And that's interesting because that's actually something that we have done now for almost 10 years at Dunn Capital. And that because one of the things we wanted to, was to try and overcome the weakness of trend following. And one of the weaknesses of trend following is, of course, 
the environment can be unfavorable. So we're not doing what the trend followers, a trend barometer is doing, I can assure you, but we are thinking in the same concept in terms of how much risk should we be allocating overall in an environment where our definition of a good environment or a bad environment um, is, say, for example, if it's a high reading, well, maybe we should allocate a little bit more risk. If it's a low reading, maybe we should allocate less risk. So not switching the systems on and off, but maybe setting the risk budget accordingly. So so I think, Eli, is it's an interesting question. I think that if you... I think it can be solved in different ways. Uh, I think for sure that the innovation and the discoveries we made 10 years ago has, without a shadow of a doubt, improved our risk-adjusted returns. So I feel confident in saying that you can make this work for you, but it's just in a slightly different way than the way Eli posed the question. Um, but the concept and the idea, and and to some extent what you're saying is we're kind of doing it, but you just need to be really smart about how you want to do it. Um, but I do think it's a it's an area of trend following which is perhaps a little bit under-discovered. Uh, it's not easy to do, for sure. Um, but and it and it goes outside the classical trend. I mean, Jerry would never do this, right? For example, and classical trend followers would kind of not do this um, because you're introducing more than one stop, uh, one entry, one stop, and 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 uh, and an exit, right? You're doing more than that. So so that's probably where a lot of trend followers would never ever um, go into this. But I think uh, you know I can say with ten years of of live data saying that. We've made it work to some extent, um, but not in the way that that the question was necessarily phrased, but but some cousin of that. And I think that's very, very interesting uh, indeed. So, yeah. yeah. That is interesting, Neil. Right. I'd like to be a fly on the wall in Dunn just to see how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. All righty. Anyways, let's move on to a question from Adam. Uh, Adam uh, writes, Hi, Nils. I hope you're well. Great show as always. I have a question regarding leverage. When you and your co-host refer to, for example, leverage of two times, I think it would be useful for me and your listeners to get an understanding of what exactly we're talking about here. In most uh, the most obvious assumption for me is to look at the max notional value of open positions. Uh, for example, if you have a $100,000 trading account and your notional open positions could be at 200000 then the leverage is 2x. However, many of us in this space calculate our position size uh, by specifying a dollar amount from trade open price to stop. Um, so the max loss per trade, for example, 50 basis points of portfolio to stop for each position if we are specifying our trade size as based on a max loss to stop, how should we think about leverage in our portfolios? It would be great to hear your thoughts. Great show as always. Thanks very much, um, Adam, for that question and your kind words. Um, do you want to go first on your with your thoughts, Rich, and I'll add yeah. anything if, if um, I need So, to. look, the, the way I view um, leverage, um, be, because I allocate a, a fixed dollar risk per bet, um, in my trading system. So, for example, if I'm trading, let's say, a $100,000 account with my portfolio and I was assigning an equal risk bet of, say, $500 per trade, um, that's therefore assigning 
50 basis points of risk in dollar terms to each of my trades. So if I therefore double my leverage, I view that as double the position sizing or double the risk bet. So I'd double the risk allocation to $1,000 per trade or 1% of my um, my balance and my equity. Um, so that that's how I'd view um, leverage. But um, that's easy for, uh, say, the systems I trade because I've got a defined risk allocation between my entry and my stop. Um, but where you're trading um, different um, uh, trading methods that, for instance, don't employ that sort of rigorous risk allocation basis per trade, um, leverage then to me is something where um, if you have 100,000 equity applied um, to an allocation towards a particular market, uh, you might then double your leverage by playing $200,000 allocation to that uh, particular market, which therefore subsequently is doubling your position size, but it's not not the same way as I was mentioning with my risk allocation per trade, but that that's what I'd say, Niels. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think what Adam uh, does is he he um, he touches on a very interesting uh, question, right? Because a lot of people think always about uh, leverage in this in the in the term of uh, sort of notional exposure, because leverage is often associated with, I think, uh, investors doing something like a long only uh, trade, and if they do it with leverage, that means they're doing it with more money than they have, so to speak. And so, if they do it at a two x level of leverage, they're going to lose twice as much money as opposed to if they were doing it without leverage. So that's pretty clear. And and so I think it's perfectly normal to think about it in that way. However, um, Adam also explains correctly that for classical trend followers, um, we don't look at leverage. Well, we, we can calculate the leverage exactly as described, but it's not how we manage the risk because that's where the stop comes in. So we can have a lot of leverage, but if our stops are pretty tight, then we won't lose very much money. It doesn't really matter what the leverage is, you could almost say, because it's the stop that determines the real risk in the portfolio. Um, so, so that's how I would look at it. So we're often, we are also, I mean, I am uh, often asked about what the leverage is and we can calculate and we can tell them, well, we have X number of uh, uh, notional leverage in our portfolio right now. But it will never tell them anything about necessarily what the actual kind of risk is. Uh, for that, you need to look uh, elsewhere. And this is maybe one place where you could say there's a third way of looking at leverage for a CTA, which we maybe can better compare uh, manager by manager or strategy by strategy, and that's the margin to equity ratio. So clearly, if you're putting up a lot of margin uh, in your account, you would expect to be running at a higher risk, generally speaking. So I do think that's probably a better way to compare uh, CTA strategies um, because nobody, you, first of all, not everyone uses a risk to stop calculation. Uh, I know I've talked a lot about this because that's something I use in the uh, TTU uh, trend following model and, and you do it and, and other people do it as well. And um, and so so that's perfectly fine, and that gives you a really good view on what is my risk today if everything gets stopped out. I actually think that's a useful number, and you should you should if you use stops in a, your model, you should know that number. You should know the ra expected range of that number, whether it's ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, whatever it is. You should really know that about your system. But of course, you could never ask uh, 
all sorts of managers for that number um, because some people may not use that. If they're using a value-at-risk model, there isn't a stop per se, or if they're using moving averages, there isn't a stop per se, so you can't calculate it. And in that case, I think maybe a universal number you can use is the margin to equity ratio to give you some kind of level uh, understanding of is this manager more taking more risk on uh, or another manager. So, anyways. So we have another question from Mark. Um, Mark writes, I'm currently just running a basic 127-day uh, dungeon channel around six months breakout model. But the same question can be applied to moving average crossover or just a plain single moving average trend-following model, long above the moving average and short below the moving average. Many people use a trend filter to determine if the long-term trend is up or down. Then they use some trading rules on top of that. If you just simply trade the basic trend filter without any other rules, no stops, you you get as good as results uh, with a lot less complication. Jerry says you need to simplify and have a trend signal to buy or sell and a stop without any other mess. Uh, without any other mess. I think all you need is a trend signal, trend up or trend down, and nothing else because... Uh, a stop doesn't seem to add much value to the long-term returns or reduce the long-term volatility uh, in a long-term backtest. And to further expand on my question, if I run a 127-day dungeon channel breakout, then my stop should be at the 127-day low, which is the change of trend, not some arbitrary A2, uh, ATR stop. So I'm going to cut the question there because there's two other topics that uh, Mark brings up. Um your thoughts on whether we are complicating our models by introducing a stop, uh, or whether we should just uh, and 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 just trade the the breakout channel, so to speak, without any anything further? Have you ever looked at this, Rich? Yeah, look, I have, and um, it's actually very interesting because um, the reason I incorporate a stop is probably not for why most people would think I'd use a stop. So most people think that you use a stop to minimise your adverse risk excursion on that trade. But as you and I know, Niels, um, during fast-moving markets where slippage can be extreme, a stop might not necessarily save you. Um, it's a small bet size that ultimately is your ultimate defence when all other things break down. But um, the predominant reason I do use a stop um, is to manage the risk in the portfolio. So this is not a, a stop for the basis, the benefit of a system. This is a stop used for each system in a portfolio to benefit um, uh, the maximum exposure of portfolio risk. We talked about heat before, um, portfolio heat. With the absence of um, stops um, at, at a portfolio level, any of those return streams in that portfolio could potentially adversely pull that entire portfolio down. But by having stops integrated within uh, the entirety of the portfolio and each of the return streams that are, are present in the portfolio, it means that um, as you're entering draw Drawdown, risk is being released as those stops are being triggered. So risk from the portfolio is being um, um, 
released on an ongoing basis. So you find that your drawdown starts, uh, well, it, it initially takes off, but then it starts reducing in its drawdown exposure as more and more releases risk from the portfolio. So there comes a point in time where risk has been fully released from the portfolio and you can find then that uh, you're, you go back up to high watermark very quickly. Now, I attribute that to the use of stops at the portfolio level to, to release this risk steam from the portfolio. So that's how I view stops. So, so what Mark is actually saying, um, as far as I can re uh, read or tell, um, he's saying, well, why don't you just use the other side of the channel as your stop, right? So it's not he's not saying don't use a stop. He's just saying don't use a stop and have a, a, a another um, you know have the the um, as an additional uh, level. Uh, just use the the um, when the trend would trigger a reversal because then you know you should be short, right? So. So I think that's what he's saying. Do we really need to have that uh, stop in between uh, that would cause you to be neutral uh, until the markets hit um, the uh, the lower side of the channel or breaks up and, and hits the 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 top side again? Um, yeah. Look, I, I think that's valid. I think I think what he says is valid there, but. Um, the way I tend, the, the reason I do like ATR is that um, it's it's useful on so many different measures. It's it's not only useful for um, calibrating uh, your position size and your risk um, for an individual strategy, but it's also very useful to normalise risk across your entire portfolio using ATR. So it allows us to trade all of these different markets the same way. Um, so. You know, when, if, for instance, it, it's got this multi, multi-purpose use ATR, so that's why I do use it. But I think what, what he says is valid. Um, using the other side of the Donkian channel, why not? Um, if your models work out that way, that's valid. The only thing I'd say is that can you then normalise that across all of your different markets to therefore trade the same model the same way? You might be able to. I'm, I'm just... You know, well, I think the out. position calculation is different, though, in my view. So you could still use ATR to calculate your position size, right? If you, this is just really a matter of triggering the entry and the exit, right? But I think f what it comes down to for me is that what Mark is referring to is a complete reversal system, right? So you're never neutral. You're really either long or you're short. I think having a stop in between allows you a couple of things. It may allow you, of course. This, at the end of the day, Mark, the the uh, the proof is in the pudding. So if you do your back test and you come to the conclusion that it, this is a better way for you, absolutely go with it. And whatever Rich and I might say now is actually meaningless um, if you have a, a something that you've designed that comes out better. But 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 not knowing the results of a, of a back test like you like your system, I would say what a stop in between allows. Uh, those of us who use that, in a sense, it allows us to take slightly bigger positions, right? Because we, um, you know, the distance from the entry to the where the stop is is going to be lower than if we wait until the other side of the the channel. First and foremost, that that would be my my, my initial thing. Um, it also, uh, and that that could be meaningful. It doesn't have to be. But the other thing that it could do as well is it could reduce the negative impact when markets go into these range trading periods where you get stopped in and out. And if you have a wide distance between your entry and your exit because you don't have a stop in between, you're just looking at the channel as such, 
again, depending on the markets you trade, et cetera, et cetera, then you might get whipsawed a lot more than you would otherwise do. Now, again, it could be that your method is better in the long run, uh, so I'm not uh, dismissing it. Um, on the other hand, I will say, Mark, if you're systematic, I don't think you're complicated. It's not more complicated to run a system with a stop than a system without a stop. I, because we're mechanical, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's easy to do. Um, but it is an interesting point um, that you raise. And of course, what you suggest to do is really hardcore trend following, which of course we all like to hear. Um, so if you're having success with that, um, then by all means. Uh, Actually, sure. I do, I do agree thing, with what you said, Niels. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, before I talked about, uh, you know, there was a time to trade and a time to grow go fishing, I, I don't like trend-following systems that are continuously on in the market because it means you're you're subject to a lot of the market activity in the normal distribution, which I, I tend to think we want to avoid um, to, to sp specifically focus on these the, the more sort of exotic tail regions. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That could be another reason for sure. Now, then uh, Mark goes on to talk about um, another topic that we've uh, discussed uh, um, a lot, and that is vault targeting. Now, Mark goes on to, to say, my point is that trend-following systems seem to work better and more philosophically consistent without stops, just long in uh, an uptrend and then go short in a downtrend. Okay, fine. Vault targeting. Vault targeting is more logical than no vault targeting. If an asset is in a trend, then it has same theoretical potential as all other assets in an uptrend and should be treated equal, meaning equal amount of risk at all times. If you let a winner ride a while, then it will have a disproportional amount of risk compared to other trending assets. The only way you can justify that is if you believe that this winner is better than other trends, why else would you allocate a disproportional amount to this winner? A pure trend follower treats all trends the same and therefore should adjust risk of portfolio as to give you all trending assets equal risk. In theory, if there is no cost or slippage, vol targeting should be done daily, um, but that isn't practical. The reason vol targeting uh, wasn't done in the past is it is a pain to readjust all positions periodically and doesn't uh, matter too much to the end result. If all trends should be treated equal at all times and risks should be proportional allocated at all times, vault targeting is the only answer. But even so, if you don't vault target, it still ends up uh, about the same. Jerry will be fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, now, I will say, <laughs> before you Jerry get into be this, Rich, uh, <laughs> let's make the answer not too long because we, uh, we're we not even close to, uh, well, we, we still have your topics and I have a topic. So do you have a short answer to this um, view? Look, like I say, he's got a, he's got a very powerful way of explaining things. I think I, I congratulate him on his, his um, succinct way of explaining things. However, I don't view... Uh, trends in the same way as he does. So um, uh, I, I'm targeting what we refer to as outliers. So everything up until the point of entry into a trend, I am using rules that are dictated by uh, rules from the normal distribution. So my ATR-based stops, where to place my initial stop, where to enter my trade. Because at that point in time, I'm entering the trade, I don't know that it's going to be an outlier. An outlier is something you can only say in hindsight. And 
to, to me at least, and the reason I don't use volatility targeting is that I believe that um, these outlier events, um, which are anomalies, I think they defy statistical treatment. I don't necessarily agree that you can use volatility or, or any information associated with volatility to, um, to, to improve the situation in relation to outliers. I'm not talking about other forms of trend. I'm referring to outliers here. So because I'm targeting these outliers and they can be uh, very various in form, shape or whatever, I don't think volatility is useful for me. So I don't use it. So at the point of entering a trade, I do take a lot of information from the normal distribution, but that's at the point of entry. Thereafter, I let that trade do whatever it wants to do without any assumptions being made in relation to that trade. So um, at that point of taking the trade, I'm using my realised equity as a basis to assign my risk. I'm using everything up to entry from the normal distribution, and then I place my bet, and then the bet is free to do whatever it likes. Now, he, he might say that, oh, well, during the course of that trade, because you're, you're, you've got so much profit on that particular trade, it's unweighting your, you know, it's, it's creating different weights in the portfolio. That's true, but I'm letting my profits run. I'm not tampering with them. I'm not doing anything with them. So um, that's because at that point of time, I let that trade go at entry. That's as much inference as I'm going to make about the nature of that trade. So that's how I trade. Obviously, other people... Um, trade different ways yeah no um, i mean um, great great defense uh of uh, of your methodology i think mark does raise some interesting points and uh, i think as i've said before um i don't know that there is clear evidence one way or the other um and uh, so it's interesting well i will say though that there is one point that he that mark makes and i'm not saying that the way mark describes vol management is the way that I would think about vol management. I think there's a few different ways to think about this, but there is one point that I actually think is important. And that is, theoretically at least, if you don't do any kind of management of your positions during the trade, you could end up with one or two positions really becoming dominant in terms of the PNL, driving the whole portfolio if you have a really big outlier. And so the question becomes, and I know I've heard, uh, you know, our friends talk about, well, what, how to deal with that? Well, then you just cut it down discretionarily and so on and so forth. And I'm not a big fan of that, to be frank, um, because that can't be put into a backtest. But, uh, but I do think it is va a valid point to say, is this what we really want at some stage, have most of our P&L be driven by one or two positions? So I do think that's a valid, interesting point, how people deal with it. It's up to them as long as it works for them, uh, I would say. All right, final point. And I do think Mark has done a great job in hitting on all our sore points when it comes to uh, topics that we that we don't necessarily agree <laughs> on. So well done for you, for, for, to Mark for doing that. So let's take the, the final one. Um, and this is about starting equity versus unrealized gains being treated differently, which is part of the vol targeting debate. Money is money. There is no theoretical difference between $100 if you started with $50 or with $200. The only difference is in your mind as you try to protect your original uh, principle and you are little, uh, a little looser with your gains. This is pure mind games that people play with themselves. Mathematically, open trade profits should be treated just the same as any other money. It's just money and how it got into your account is irrelevant and how it should be treated going forward. 
all trends should be treated equally at all times. All money should be treated equally at all time, not just when trades are put on. And all risk should be treated equally. Um, and then he writes in brackets, I weight position size based on inverse standard deviations. Very cool. I, I mean, as you said, very well phrased, uh, hitting the nail uh, with uh, with a topic that we've also discussed Um I know you're in the you're in the camp of not treating things equally, right? Yeah, I, I believe that um, the trends we target are not from the normal distribution. I believe they're they're in the zone which is trending towards what I call a couchy distribution. So um, it's not um, it's not the same size fits all. I, I know Mark is suggesting you know we treat all markets the same, we do everything the same. Uh, there is no point of equity where we should treat things differently. But I tend to disagree. I, I think when when we get to these exotic regions that can go couchy on you, which means that they can go almost infinite in extent, um, I believe you, you you've got to treat it differently. So. Uh, I, you know, I, I come from a bit of a gambling heritage where I spent a lot of my time in my early days in a casino, um, and you know, I'd be I'd be fastidious in protecting my capital, which was the amount of money I took to the casino. But um, when I went to the roulette tables or to the blackjack or to to whatever, um, if I was making profit, um, I'd be very sort of. Um, uh, laissez-faire in relation to how I flung that money around simply because that was money I could afford to lose. And I believe that when things go couchy or extreme, um, you need to get a bit um, you need to get a bit robust in your betting stance, if you like, if you know what I mean. So you can afford to take a bigger risk because uh, really uh, when you arrived at that table, you're not going to lose anything. I, I really worry about adverse risk in relation to the, my capital, but I'm very loose in relation to um, taking some punts when when things are doing well for me. And I think that's the way this universe works. I think that, uh, you know, there are times where you can exploit opportunities provided that they don't uh, damage you um, sort of aggressively. So that that's just my philosophy. Sure, sure. I mean, what I find, and, and by the way, I mean, again, both methodologies seems to to work well for, for, for different people. So that, again, in my view, there's no wrong or right. What I do find interesting about your argument, and, and the same argument is obviously being made by some of our other friends, um, is this notion that, okay, if I start with $100 and I make another $100, that you don't recognize that you now have really $200, that that is your money. Because that's what you're saying. This is not really my money. It's the kind of $100 plus some, something I've, that's just fallen down to me. And I do <laughs> think that's a little bit of an odd uh, thing because if you go from $200, especially if you're managing money for other people, imagine that you have someone who's invested uh, $100,000 with you and that account grows to $200,000 and then it drops to 100,000 i can assure you that client is going to feel it feel that as a 50% drawdown he's not going to feel it as oh yeah i just gave up what i made uh, at the table right so this is my probably why i lean more to the other camp that actually the uh, and and in this case mark's camp well the money is the money and whatever is in our account today is what the account size is. It's not kind of what it was. I, I'd agree with you, Neil. So yeah. I don't manage people's money. This is this is how I do it myself. Yeah. So um, it's obviously a personal preference here. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Anyways, we won't tell Jerry that you actually agree with me, but 
he might hear it on his treadmill. So <laughs> be, be careful. Anyways, let's go to your topics. Um, and again, we'll we'll try and maybe go through them relatively quickly because we've already been gone going for an hour. So, uh, but they are important. Uh, so I want to hear your thoughts about it. The first topic you wrote to me was trading an ensemble of trend following systems versus trending trading a single trend following system. Tell me what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, so uh, what what this is basically saying is that uh, because I'm of the viewpoint that outliers can take numerous different forms, and a good, good example would be Jerry often refers to the Moderna move, which was an ex- exponential move in price. Uh, but there are other outliers that can take a totally different form, like um, I believe the S&P 500 has had an outlier for the last 10 years between 2010 up to 2019. It's, uh, it hasn't uh, been seen historically before in a record, but that was effectively a linear trend. So outliers can take lots of different forms. So um, if you um, trade an ensemble of trend-following systems, Um, each one of those systems being configured differently in relation to its entry, its initial stop and its trailing exit or whatever method you take, it allows you to capture different aspects of outliers. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to capture the entire trend, but it will allow you to capture different aspects of that trend. And, And the more um, systems you have that um, that outlier, the more meat you can extract from that trend. So there is always a risk when you're trading a single trend-following system towards a trending market that your initial stop or your your trailing exit might be too tight and it might fling you out of that trade with a whipsaw. Um, so the the cost of that is that um, you get whipsawed out of a trade, and you might find uh, that. It takes a long time for the signal to activate again and get back on board that trend. Uh, Or you might find that you never get back on board that trend and you miss that entire opportunity. But with an ensemble of systems, um, I find that, you know, maybe one or two of them get get whipsawed out, but the bulk of them still remain in or different aspects of the time of that trend. So I'd always prefer trading an ensemble of trend-following systems as opposed to um, focusing or concentrating my effort towards one trend-following system because a, a system itself, basically, um, it it con- comprises constraints like uh, the entry signal, the initial stop, and the trailing exit all form constraints around which price has to move to remain in trend. So it's not necessarily saying that uh, the trend is broken for your system to be triggered out. It just means that your system has been triggered out. Um, the, the trend could continue on. So that, that's why I'd always prefer an ensemble. So that was the first point I wanted to raise. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you and I uh, see this probably more uh, eye to eye. Um, I like the idea of slightly different systems. Uh, they don't have to be vastly different. Um, and certainly uh, uh, on our side at Don, we don't use one single type of trend-following model. We have a couple of them. Um, but then on top of that, of course, you have the different uh, parameter settings for each of the models. will also gives you further diversification in terms of your entries and your exits and so on and so forth. So I do believe that that's definitely um, important. Um, even though I would also say that if you go back to really classical trend following, um, one methodology, but maybe with a two or three different uh, parameter settings, can do really well. Um, maybe with a bit more volatility, I would say. Uh, not so smooth, but it can do really well. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think there's anything... Um, you know, I mean, we believe in diversification in general, 
So why not also have a little bit of diversification in in terms of the trend following systems we we use? I think that makes makes sense. Um, then yeah. the, the next topic yeah. you uh, raised was uh, you wrote to me some of the issues surrounding using the same trend following systems for a diversified composite such as an index versus a single asset. So tell me where you were going with that. Yeah, so often the the, the, the questions have been raised about uh, as a trend follower, would you prefer to trade an index or would you prefer to trade a single market? So what, what okay. this is doing is it's um, it's just talking about something that's been raised, that, that Moritz Siebert um, on... on um, uh, raise this as well, which I think is is very important. Is that it? That a lot depends on how the index was, is constructed. So some indexes um, have use a cap weighted basis to construct their index, which therefore uh, means that certain um, uh, let, let's say the S and P five hundred certain stocks in that in index get a higher weighting than other stocks. Now what that weighting does is it changes the correlation structure of that um, index. So it means that um, certain um, certain smaller stocks in that index might be exhibiting glorious trends that we could have been trading both short and long, but because of the, the weighting of, of that index, those trends have been suppressed. And so um, the trends, for instance, observed in the, the FANG stocks, um, Amazon, Google, et cetera, um, that sort of dominates the, the overall price movement of the index. So um, in my mind, um, I, I suppose we could do a comparison where we could say, all right, let's compare and contrast a trend-following system that is both long and short that trades an index like the S&P 500 versus let's trade all of its constituents with an equal weighting, 500 constituents, both long and short, and see if there's a significant difference um, in the overall um, result for our trend-following models. And I, I'd suggest there would be um, because I'd, I'd suggest that a lot of the what I call the outlier moves that are present in the smaller weighted stocks are being suppressed uh, by the weighting of that index. Um, so that that's one of the, the key points that I'd just like to raise. So ideally, as a trend follower, a classic trend follower, I like to use the same models across any market. So if I'm trading commodities or if I'm trading um, currencies or if I'm trading uh, indexes, etc., I'd be like to use the same model. But the method of construction of the index sort of changes that ball game a bit because you you'll find that your models work differently on an index as they would to a, a single commodity a single currency etc so that that's one of the reasons i'd just like to raise uh, that that you need to consider um the second thing is that uh, in for instance if for instance i am deciding as a trend follower which markets to trade i i want to create a diversified portfolio on my own terms. In other words, um, the universe that I trade, I want to construct myself based on what my models tell me is the optimal configuration of my universe. But if, for instance, I am forced to trade an index, 
there is a committee out there that have made that selection for me. They're the ones that have bundled that S&P 500 together, or they're the ones that have bundled that ETF together, uh, or they're the ones that uh, they have made the decision in how um, that diversified ensemble of systems um, should be traded. See, I want that benefit myself as a trend follower to, to decide that on my own terms. So I prefer to do it myself rather than a committee. And another thing is that, you know, if, for instance, I uh, was making a decision whether I would prefer to trade a single stock um, such as um, Jerry often refers to the example of trading a, a stock of eggs um, or a stock of, stock of um, French fries as opposed to a diversified stock, um, he would always prefer to trade the stock of eggs, etc. Because in those in, inherently sort of mono stocks, um, the impact of outliers tends to be more extreme. If you trade a diversified company, the company itself is already taking those measures to reduce the inherent volatility in that company. So that's why they've become diversified. They they want to um, uh, flatten their cash flows or basically make their cash flows more predictable. So they've diversified their company to do that. So if you trade that diversified company, you're, you're basically not getting the full benefit of, of the volatility that exists in that um, thing. So the they're basically the points I'd like to raise on relation to that. Like, yeah, what do you and think? no, I think that <clears throat> I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But that, but there is one practical thing that I think overrides some of it, and that is, most people that I speak to, they don't trade the single stocks on the short side; <laughs> they trade the index on the short side. So you're actually not trading the same thing in your model. You're doing single stocks to the upside, but you're doing the index to the downside because there are some inherent risks that makes shorting single stocks, as we saw with GameStop and stuff like that, uh, very risky indeed. So that is my only thing I would raise and yeah. say, yeah, I mean, I think in You've theory... You've got to trade them differently. In theory, mm. it sounds like a great idea, um, but if you can't do it uh, the same way on both sides, um, does it make it still a great idea? I don't know. It, it may do. Uh, it may still do. Uh, one thing that actually is a little bit interesting, and I, I do appreciate your point about you're going to get some more outliers when you trade more single stocks than a few indices. On the other hand, maybe you could say, yeah, but the increased volatility in trading single stocks, you're also be going to be stopped in and out more often than a more uh, low volatile uh, index which may allow you to stay with the trend for a much longer time. I mean, you and I know that some of the longer-term trend-following models, they probably have been long equities for years up until recently, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because yeah. some of the indices were relatively stable. So if you had lose enough pants, so to speak, in your model, then uh, you would have stayed long since, I don't know, 2015. So... Just something yeah. to put in there. Again, I don't know if there's clear evidence one way or the other, but I do think, again, if it comes down to personal preference, if people have found something that works for them, by all means, that's what they should do. That The most important thing is that we believe in the rules and the systems that we have, because otherwise we're never going to stick to them. Um, and we're never going to get anyone else to uh, be confident uh, in our ability to uh, to manage money following rules. So I think that's the most important thing. Um, all right. Yeah. Final point, uh, and then we'll have one more topic. Um, 
And that is, you write about a method to avoid the anxiety associated with building drawdowns when the devil on your shoulder whispers to you that your system's no longer working. I, th- I think a lot of people can relate to that, actually. Uh, so, uh, so give me, uh, give me, yeah. uh, give me your thoughts on that one. So, look, a, a lot of people um, they often ask the question, um, you know, how much can I tolerate before I turn my systems off? Um, you know, how much adversity can you tolerate? And um, I've been through that before, and I know it's a painful thing. But um, I just wanted to um, explain a method that I'm using now, which actually totally avoids that situation from ever arising, which I think is fantastic, because you never psychologically enter that time where the devil on your shoulder whispers, should I turn my systems off? So the way I do it is that um, I've explained how I use a workflow process that uh, continuously updates my portfolio on an annual basis. As as, as a, a year's worth of extra data comes in, I add that to my testing universe, basically, and undertake my tests on a yearly basis. So I'm continuously updating my model. So what that means is that at the commencement of a year when I undertake this workflow process, I have the models that I deploy for the next 12 months. Um, they sort of chug away for the next 12 months. And then when the next 12 months arrives, I get a year's worth of extra data. So I might now have 41 years of historical data to assess. I then um, undertake my entire workflow process again. I'm not waiting for my systems to underperform. I'm now undertaking a process again to rigorously um, backtest them. So then when that next year arrives, I then say, all right, of all my inactive systems, turn them off. Of all my current active systems, let them run. But supplement now the entire group of systems with the new batch of systems generated from that new workflow process that now has an additional year's worth of data. So you'll see that what I'm doing there is I'm not waiting for my systems to underperform before I change the system or turn off the system. I'm using an adaptive process that's progressively using more and more data as time goes on, uh, which naturally therefore adapts my trend-following models in light of the new data that that has arrived. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and 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 um, I think it's something that um, I also um, think about a lot, actually. But as far as I can tell, this is not going to stop you from losing money, right? Because you could be just choosing. No. you're going to be choosing systems based on, as you say, a little bit more data, but those systems can easily run into a drawdown on top of the drawdowns you may have had on the systems that are going out of your system. So so for me, it, it wouldn't necessarily give me a lot more confidence uh, about uh, future drawdowns, but what it will do is give me a sense of, well, I'm at least picking what, based on all the data I have, should be, and I have to stress the words should be, the most robust or dependable yes. systems to deal with different kinds of environments. And see, that that's psychologically to me is is my, uh, th- this means that I don't have to wait till my systems are underperforming to turn them off. I, I don't want to be making that decision at the worst possible time where everything's going against me. I don't want to be making decisions at that point in time. But this process at least allows me to, you know, as you say, uh, there is no way to really evaluate whether it's better or not, but it just avoids that psychological um, decision having to be made, which I find is good for me. Yeah, and I think that 
that's the key point. Again, finding something that we believe in, uh, even though we have no certainty really uh, in any of the things we do, we have probabilities and th- those are the ones we work with. Okay, very cool, uh, Rich. By the way, the one topic that <clears throat> maybe we should think about for our next conversation is the fact that we talk about all of this having an extra year's of worth of data and and of course the, uh, the, the Serenity portfolio that you and I pick every every year based on one extra worth uh, years of data of course this year it's actually comes thrown out a couple of surprises in terms of the uh, two of the five programs it picked has actually gone into severe drawdowns maximum drawdowns for those two strategies so again it that that is a very good example of even if you use a process that adds more and more data to your decision making process it does not tell you anything about what the future holds and the fact that they can't surprise no, you. No, but what it does do is now we know that those two programs have underperformed. So the next year we do it, they get eliminated out of the mix. That is true. So, yes, as, as, new, as new data comes in, I find a lot of firms that say that, that there are trend followers can survive many, many years before um, they're slowly winnowed out from the rest and you see the reasons for the departure of their performance. So uh, based on the track record we are presented, we would have assumed, oh, yes, they're, they're a good trend follower to use for our particular ratio. However, now we've seen that um, there are cracks in those two models. They now get dropped out of the system. So the new batch of systems, as I was, you know, the new batch of systems that arrives next year going forward, are going to eliminate those two. That that's the adaptive component, which I think is really powerful. I agree with that. I agree with that part. Uh, but again, just to stress, it doesn't mean we're going to get the best performance. Uh, but we have a process for no. at least eliminating things that. And by the way, what's really interesting about the uh, the thing that you and I are doing uh, when we do the monthly update and we talk about. Um, how we select managers based on serenity, but you can obviously also select them based on other things. But you know what this really illustrates to me, and that is even with managers and strategies with a long track record and big size and great infrastructure and all of those things, there is no certainty, right? I mean, this is so out of character, really, uh, in a (laughs) trend-following year like this. Uh, So... It, it just shows you how difficult it is to um, to do this in a consist in a quote unquote consistent way, and also actually how difficult it is for clients and potential investors in trend following um, to pick managers, and which is also why I think you and I would always um, expect people, of course, based on enough cash, to uh, not just pick one manager but pick a couple uh, to diversify, uh, you know, the the risk anyways, regardless of how great the track record might be. Anyway, that's for another day. I want to finish off with one topic that I do think is really important, uh, at least it's important to me, because I was listening to a great podcast um, only yesterday, and I don't necessarily want to go into who said what because it's more about the uh, what was said in terms of what what made me sort of um, raise my eyebrows a bit and actually tweet about it, which I uh, don't al- always have time to do. Um, but the point that was made was this year, and this is a question that I get as well, this year, why has volatility strategies in general, there are a few exceptions, of course, but why have volatility in strategies in general not protected investors? Because most of them are down double digit this year, um, or ma- many of them are down double digit this year in a year where the uh, equities are in a bear market. How can that possibly happen, right? And 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 
And there was a good explanation as to why that's probably the case and, and how the VIX index this year is not reacting uh, in the same way as it would normally do. Um, the lack of quote-unquote uncertainty in the market is being reflected in the, in the VIX, even though we do see the, the stocks come off. I think that was actually a great part of the uh, conversation. But then it went, it turned a little bit um, and it turned to the fact that um, one of the participants had a strong opinion that CTAs, and this is where my eyebrows got raised when I heard the word CTAs in this conversation, why they would not be a good hedge going forward if the economy goes into recession because CTAs had done really well from the rising prices in commodities, for example, uh, so far this year. And I thought that was interesting. First of all, um, my view on this is that, well, we are not a C we are not a hedge. We've never been a hedge to a certain outcome because we're a non-correlated strategy. So you don't really know in advance how the performance is going to react to a certain uh, event. We, we simply don't know. It would be dishonest of us to say that we knew. Um, so I think that is a very important point that even if the guest is right that we are heading into recession and commodities are going to continue to trade down, he or she cannot say in advance whether that's good or bad for trend followers. We simply don't know. So that was the first thing. The second thing I thought was very interesting, I also think it was interesting to say that because a lot of these vol managers have been pretty adamant in, in, in the past to say, well, and vol strategies became very popular uh, in, in recent years as a hedge to uh, equity bear markets. But now it's been proven within a relatively short space of time that even that part, even if they only trade kind of one instrument against the equities, that even didn't help um, to, quote unquote, provide protection or a hedge against what's happened in equity markets um, to date. So... There's so if they don't have if they can't provide that with a guarantee, well then you can't make the statement saying well I think uh, vol managers are going to do better if uh, equity markets going to continue to fall. We we simply uh, don't know that. And the final point that I just want to make uh, on this topic and and the reason why I spend a little bit of time on this today is that I um, it concerns me if this these kind of messages get out to investors and investors believe that this is so. Um, that That's the only reason why I want to spend time on this. And it's not a criticism of, of any participant as such. It's just to help further the conversation about what we do and what we don't do. Um, but the point being is that, yes, trend followers have done really well so far this year. Um, and, a part, and a big part of that has come from commodities, but not all of it. Um, but a big part of it has come from commodities. But as you rightly referred to early on in our conversation today, and I can concur with that, and and the, the uh, industry numbers that I quoted earlier confirms this, is that despite the fact many of the commodities are down 20, 30% from their recent highs, maybe even more in some cases within the last um, six, eight weeks, most CTAs, and a lot of the trend followers are still close to their all-time high watermark. So we haven't seen the give back, as you said, that often you see um, because we are in a divergent environment, meaning markets are doing different things at different times, which is the 
perfect environment for trend followers. That's really what we should have every year um, because it, it is a way for our models to do uh, and deliver the very best that they can. And when you look into the exposures by managers, my guess is that a lot of trend followers are actually not that long commodities anymore. Some of them might actually be short commodities at this point. And therefore, making a forward statement about, well, if commodity, if we go into recession, commodities go down further, CTAs won't do well, probably meaning trend followers won't do well, is a very dangerous thing to say because we don't know. And actually, I would get, I would hazard to say that if they just continue to go down from here, that may not be such a bad thing for, for the current exposure. Um, so those were the things that I just wanted to um, to bring up. Um, and um, I'm not expecting you necessarily to have a big view about it, but it was important to me to just set the record straight um, that we need to be careful um, because the conversation might be correct about what's going to happen with the economy and we're going into recession. But we always, when it comes to trend follows, need to be super careful making that into a prediction, a steadfast prediction about what our performance is going to be. That's what I've learned at least the yeah, last 30 plus years. I agree, Neil. So uh, the statement that, you know, if, if, if commodities sort of don't enter this super cycle and they start going down, well, you know, already we're benefiting from going down. We, we just care about whether there are trends in the market, short or long. And uh, we're not really concerned about any predictive stance regarding our view of whether commodities are going to go up or down. It doesn't really matter, provided they trend. Um, and, you know, the only other thing I'd say is that, you know, I think we have seen in the past uh, uh, short-term models doing well when there's been this sudden explosion of volatility. Uh, we saw this, um, I think, in, in March 2020. We saw this in uh, the Black Friday event, etc. But we're not necessarily seeing this being repeated now. We're not seeing that confluence of events where all the markets being highly correlated suddenly um, experience this sort of uh, Volmageddon type event where uh, they all now are diverging on their own terms and they're all fairly uncorrelated. So, you know, uh, there was a time where volatility, you know, short-term models were benefiting from this sort of expansion of volatility. But, uh, you know, I think the medium to long-term models have been doing very, very well in this particular regime we're experiencing at the moment and hopefully it continues. Yeah, and by the Way, uh, yeah, as I said, this is not a criticism of anyone, um, and and because people, if they look at my Twitter feed, they will know um, the conversation. Um, and in fact, I would love to uh, continue the conversation actually uh, uh, on 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 the show um, because I think it is an important one. So there's always an invitation to come and discuss these things. I just want people to be careful uh, about uh, predicting what trend followers uh, will do and putting us in a box, uh, so to say, because that's one thing that I have learned and continue to learn and that that is not a profitable uh, thing to, uh, to be too clever about. And that's the whole reason, by the way, that is the whole reason why trend followers need to be a core allocation in any portfolio. It is because we are non-correlated and, uh, and we react differently to most other strategies um, in a portfolio. So anyways, 
Richard, thank you so much for your uh, time uh, this week. It was a great conversation. If you like these conversations, please head over to iTunes and Spotify, leave a rating and review so that we can see you getting some benefit from what we do each week. Next week, as I mentioned, uh, Mark is back and perhaps we will continue um, the uh, conversation on some of the key topics that Rich mentioned. Um, and uh, and of course, if you have any questions that you want to raise uh, with Mark and you can find his, his blog post uh, to read up on it before you um, before you write your questions, of course, but do send them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to bring them up. From Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.